0: Last week, we moved on from Matthew's prologue into the body of the gospel, and we began not with Jesus himself, but rather with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. He came to point the way to the Messiah. He was not the Messiah, and as you'll remember, he began his ministry with a sermon calling for repentance. The first words ever recorded of John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel, repent, verse 2, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is ever so important to keep in mind as we move on into the rest of the gospel and we see the offer of salvation that Jesus brings. Part and parcel of the gospel message is the need to turn away from your sin, don't ever lose sight of that demand that God places on you. Don't ever believe that Jesus is okay with your sin. He's not. You have to turn from your sin to Christ. Later on in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he sums this up perhaps most succinctly as we find it anywhere in the Scriptures, as he says to them, you turn from your idols toward the living God. In one verse, Paul encapsulates the theology that we will see all the way through the gospel. Beginning with John the Baptist, you must repent of your sin. It's a twofold action turning away from that which dishonors the Lord toward his kingdom and most importantly the king. How do you do this? It is not of your own strength. We considered last week how it is John uses the prophet Isaiah why he draws from that message that was preached so many years prior to him. And we saw that through that reference, he sets forth Jesus as God. This man, this Messiah is in fact God in the flesh, and it is by beholding him that you find the grace to turn from your sin. It is only by beholding Christ as God that you can let go of your sin. You do not have the strength to let go of your sin. You are in love with your sin. Apart from any work of the gospel in your heart, you cling tightly to your sin. You have fond affection for your sin. And so the call to repentance has to begin with a beholding of Christ as God and therein begins the work of the gospel in your heart such that you can truly and permanently turn away from that which dishonors the Lord and turn toward Jesus and the coming kingdom. So we considered that last week and we thought through the necessity of repentance as part of the gospel message. This week, John's ministry continues. We're not yet at the point of seeing Jesus, at least not in the flesh. He's, he's near But he's not yet in our text this week. We consider John's ministry to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a confrontational ministry. They appear coming for this baptism of repentance. And he confronts them. And he shows the false nature of their repentance. It wasn't that there was no repentance on their part. But rather their repentance was not biblical. It was not the repentance for which John was calling And so, in this interaction, in this confrontation, what John does is he starts to give them what I've labeled portraits of judgment. John gives them specifically three portraits of judgment. He shows them the false nature of their repentance, and upon that, he says, judgment is coming your way, and teaches them about the coming judgment. Now, an interesting feature of the text that we can point out right now is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verse 11, are nowhere else in any of the other Gospels paired together. It's an interesting feature of the text. Only here, in all four Gospels, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought together. And I'll explain this morning what were their particular belief systems, and we'll see that they were entirely different. They had nothing in common as it relates to their religious beliefs. So it is somewhat strange that Matthew would bring them together, would group them together. But I think therein lies a a point that we must heed, that this, this confrontation is not founded upon anything that is distinctly Pharisaical or of the Sadducees. The confrontation that we'll read about this morning is not founded in a particular belief that was held by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but rather it was a human heart issue. By bringing these two distinct groups together and teaching them about the false nature of their repentance and the judgment that will ensue, John the Baptist is probing the inner workings of their hearts. And he is showing us an issue that relates to everybody. Everybody apart from the truth of the gospel. This is true of you and me if we don't embrace Christ. The failings of these two groups that we will see this morning are also prone to be our failings. And so the text instructs us concerning the true nature of repentance. My prayer as we work through these portraits of judgment is that we would understand not just the necessity of repentance, but its manner, what it is supposed to look like, and that we would be found by God's grace to be repenting in the way in which the Bible instructs us to repent. So thinking then about the first Portrait of Judgment and what it teaches us about repentance. Verse 7 and 8, Matthew says, When he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This first picture that John gives teaches us that repentance, which does not bear fruit, will bring judgment. That's the lesson from his, his first interaction, repentance that does not bear fruit brings judgment. So John sees these groups coming to him as he's baptizing many, and seemingly they are presenting themselves as ready for that baptism. The Pharisees, as you probably know, were very, very zealous to uphold the law. So zealous were they to uphold God's law that they had created many, many other supplementary laws. So they had a whole system of laws that they believed in in keeping them would allow them to uphold the biblical law. So demanding were their supplementary laws that most people would shrug their shoulders and say, I cannot possibly keep up with these guys and so what happened over time as people found their system to be overly burdensome what happened over time is that the pharisees became a group that were entirely set apart no one could get near them in terms of righteous living and they prided themselves in this they liked the fact that they were set apart and living in a more upright manner than seemingly anyone else of that time The Sadducees, by contrast, were much more religiously liberal. They did not uphold such a a high standard. They certainly sought to keep the law, but not in the same way as the Pharisees. And at the same time, they seemed to have a, a political interest, an interest in political things, so much so that they had actually gained some degree of favor with the Roman government. This actually angered the Pharisees. They didn't like the Sadducees in the way that they saw them to be compromising. And so again, you see these two groups don't go hand in hand. They're not buddies. They're not seeing eye to eye on certain things. The point of commonality would be that neither group had any interest in the Christ. Neither group had any real interest in the Messiah that John was proclaiming. They came to John ready for the baptism, understanding themselves to have done already whatever was necessary to be accepted by God. They did not heed his message in the first few repent because the kingdom was coming. Rather, they came saying, we have repented in a sufficient manner, therefore, we can now receive this baptism readily. And John greets them with a warm greeting. (laughs) Can you imagine? Good morning, pastor, so great to see you. You're a snake, (laughs) is what John says. This is a bold confrontation from John the Baptist. And then he says, he perhaps explains himself, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is being somewhat sarcastic here. He is prizing open their hearts and showing them why it was that their repentance was insufficient. Why their repentance didn't align with the message that he had preached and they were not ready to receive his baptism. And simply stated, the reason is because their repentance is grounded upon a fear from the wrath to come. So just think about the message that John preached last week, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's motive for repentance. Look toward what is coming your way, And on that basis, the coming kingdom on that basis turned from your sin. This is subtly different. John confronts them and says, your repentance is based upon a desire to escape God's wrath. It actually has got nothing to do with an embracing of the coming kingdom. And for that reason, he calls them a brood of vipers. And then John says something very, very interesting. He commands them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, why would it be that their, their faulty repentance, their fleeing from God's wrath, is somehow addressed by the command to bear fruit? How does verse 8 marry with verse 7? Theologically, if we can just open this up, we start to understand why a faulty repentance would bear no fruit. Consider John's message in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were to change your thoughts about your sin based upon a kingdom that is coming, If you were to turn away from your sin and start to walk in a different direction based upon something altogether glorious that is headed your way. It would make sense that from then on, for the rest of your life, as you await for this coming kingdom, you are continually striving to align yourself with its ethic you can see the kingdom coming. You have put faith in the fact that this king is on his way and he is the, the kingdom bringer. And based upon its coming, you keep saying, I want to just get rid of everything that doesn't align with the kingdom. I want to shed myself of everything that dishonors the king. So you can see in verse 2 the manner of repentance that is brought about by a beholding of the king and a beholding of his kingdom is one naturally that will start to show itself in bearing much fruit. A continuous turning away from sin. Much good works being produced in this person's life because they are waiting for the arrival of the king. And they want to make sure that when he comes, they are found to be in line with what he teaches and what he commands and what he himself is like. That's biblical repentance. If by contrast, your repentance is one that simply is trying to get away from the wrath that is to come. As soon as you understand yourself to have done that, in your mind, the job is now done. However it is that you've construed in your heart and your mind that you need to get away from that wrath, whatever arbitrary standard you've created, as soon as you've done it, you've done it. You've turned away from the wrath. You understand yourself to now be exempt from God's judgment. And therefore, for the rest of your life, you're just happy, peaceful, not worrying about anything. So what does that look like over time? It looks like no fruit. There is no fruit coming from your life. You're not repenting, continuously striving for the coming Of the kingdom. This is one of the most dangerous and yet most subtle forms of repentance. This is one of the most dangerous and at the same time most subtle forms of repentance. And here's why. One of our points last week was that John the Baptist was the forerunner. He wasn't the main thing. He's simply here to point the way to Jesus. And I think part of what Matthew is doing, presenting him as he does, is warning us, don't latch on to him as the object of your faith. Ensure that John serves his proper purpose in your life, i.e. as a forerunner, as a pointer towards Christ. We thought about that last week, and one of the things we said is just how easy it is to allow your repentance to be grounded in things other than Jesus. Don't let your repentance be grounded in your acceptance at church. That cannot be the grounds of your repentance. Don't let your repentance be grounded in someone that you like the look of. I just want to be with this girl, and therefore I'm going to repent It's not biblical repentance. In a sense, we see the same thing here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are repenting based upon something other than Jesus. But this is so much more dangerous and subtle because the thing that is prompting their repentance is an eternal truth. They're not repenting based on something that is temporary, fleeting. They are repenting based upon an eternal reality, namely the wrath that is to come. And so it looks like, on the face of it, a very eternally orientated life. The person that repents based upon God's coming wrath looks, on the face of it, very much like a true born-again Christian. They are happy to sing of eternal realities. They are happy to be around eternally minded people. You may even hear them speak in fellowship of eternally weighty things. But because their repentance is grounded upon a fear of God's wrath primarily and not an embracing of Christ... Their repentance is sending them to hell. It is the most dangerous and yet most subtle form of repentance. And I think, in part, at least, that is why John labels them as snakes. You crafty, deceitful, wicked creatures. The repentance that you are selling to other people is one that will damn them eternally. And yet on the face of it, it has such a meaningful substance to it. It looks so wonderful because it is a repentance that begins by speaking about not fleeting realities, but eternal realities. So you understand why John was so mad at these men and why his exhortation was to bear fruit. Now, with that being said, we have to remember that the antidote to such faulty repentance is not simply to strive and to work and to make sure that we are doing something in line with the commands of Scripture. That's not going to get you into God's position of acceptedness any more than these false Pharisees and Sadducees were. But rather you have to keep the original exhortation in view such that fruit would issue readily from your life. Repent because there is something glorious on the horizon. That is the foundation of your repentance. Repent because you are enamored with Christ. Repent because you have set your gaze upon this king and found him to be worthy. Repent because you see in Jesus someone who has made a payment for your sin. And you see in his kingdom something that is glorious, altogether other from this world. And on that basis, start to strive to honor Him. Not apart from it, but always, only, ever with Him as your foundation. You see, the Bible teaches that on the last day, we will be judged according to our works. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will give all according to his deeds. He will judge us for our works. Not that our works save us, but that our works are a clear indication of where our faith has been placed. And so the exhortation is to behold Jesus. And by God's grace, find him to be worthy of repentance. You find him to be altogether worthy of saying no to anything that dishonors him. And when you keep before you Jesus and his kingdom, then there will be a ready issuing of fruit in your life then you will obey John the Baptist and you will indeed bear fruit that aligns with the call to repentance. Repentance that doesn't bear fruit will bring judgment. Second portrait of judgment, John goes on, he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John teaches the Pharisees and the Sadducees that repentance, which is not now, brings judgment. Repentance that does not bear fruit brings judgment. Repentance that is not now brings judgment. And the reason I say it like that, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their hearts were leaning upon their spiritual heritage. John being very perceptive, he had spiritual eyes to see what was going on. He confronts them a second time and he says, don't. Don't murmur in your hearts. Don't grumble in your hearts. Don't say in your hearts, we're fine. We don't need to listen to this guy because you know what? We have Abraham as our father. Don't do that, says John the Baptist. They're actually falling into a very well-established pattern that we see all the way through the Old Testament, wherein God's people Israel would continuously rest upon their laurels they would rest upon what they believed to be a safety net that god had established for them you see it in the old testament especially as it relates to the temple and god's presence the old testament saints continuously made an appeal to the fact that they were the nation who had the temple look at all these surrounding nations they don't have the temple. They would continuously appeal to the fact that in our temple, God himself dwells. And for that reason, we are invincible. This was their theology that had developed over time. God would never allow the judgment that we see being wrought out on other nations to come towards us. Because we're the nation with the temple. We're the nation with God who dwells amongst us. And God confronts that thinking time and time again in the prophets. In the same way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many that had come before them would rest upon a a different theological truth, not so much the temple and God's abiding presence, but Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel. God called him and gave to him these rich promises, I will bless you I'll establish your line after you. The nations will be blessed through you. And so the Israelites would continuously say, we have Abraham. We're immune. We're not going to get God's judgment coming to us because Father Abraham. And what John says is that Abraham displayed faith in God And it was credited to him as righteousness. And you are only counted as a child of Abraham if you show that same faith. You can only make an appeal to Abraham if you show the same faith as Abraham. The children of the patriarch are those that show the same faith as he did. It has nothing to do with your physical ancestry, but everything to do with what's going on in your heart. And he, he mocks them again. He's, he's so sarcastic in this interaction. He makes a mockery of their argument by saying, look at these stones. They're children of Abraham if God wants them to be. You are not. And then he responds with this, this metaphor of the axe and the tree. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree's Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a wonderful, wonderful response from John for at least two reasons. One is that he is drawing, as you know, on an Old Testament precedent. We read this morning from Isaiah chapter 10. There are many other Chapters within the prophets that employ the same imagery of trees being cut down as a way of communicating God's coming judgment Isaiah chapter 10 God's judgment will come it will come to Assyria it will come to God's enemies and it will come to God's people if they are found to be without faith in God he will cut you down says Isaiah and John wonderfully meets their leaning on the past with another image from the past. As he understood that in their hearts, they were making recourse to Father Abraham. He says, let me give you a little bit more Old Testament theology. If that's where you want to go to find your security, Let me blow your argument apart and also go back to the past and remind you of those chapters in the Old Testament that spoke of God's coming judgment. And then secondly, as John takes that picture and works with it to confront them, he wonderfully and skillfully transposes it into the immediate present. So they're thinking in their hearts about all that has gone before them and in that they find their refuge. And John says with this this volley of present tense verbs, even now, he says right now, the ax is presently laid, not yet to come, Wake up, he says, wake up. The axe is presently laid to the root of the trees. Even now, every tree that is not presently bearing fruit, immediate reality, is presently right now being cut down. The judgment is coming upon you and is presently being thrown into the fire You see, one of the reasons that we can so easily become complacent about the reality of God's judgment is because we have put it so far into the future that we believe we don't have to act today. So often you hear of those who know something of the gospel give as a response, I'm going to do something about this, just not right now. I do intend at one point in my life to be a Christian, but right now, now is not the time. That is absolute folly. You have no idea when your earthly life is going to end. And when it does, you will stand and face judgment. And John is saying, you vipers right now the axe is against the tree and it is cutting and it is throwing into eternal fire and so the lesson that he is teaching about the nature of repentance that God's kingdom demands is not simply that it bears fruit but that it bears fruit now that repentance that is in line with the kingdom that is coming is bearing fruit today some years ago, I wrote a list of questions with a, a good friend of mine, questions aimed at getting the conversation onto meaningful spiritual things. We were frustrated by just how often we were having conversations that were not going anywhere beyond surface-level talk, and we decided we came up with a list of questions for uh, unbelievers and for believers, questions both lists designed to get the conversation very quickly to eternally significant realities. And in the list of questions that you might ask a Christian, we wrote, what is God doing in your life today? What is God doing in your life today? And over the years, I've found that to be a very helpful question to gauge somebody's spiritual temperature. Because you'll find often within the church, people are able to give a testimony of what God has done in their life in times previous. And in the same conversation, they can't explain how God is teaching them today. Years prior to us making that list, Laura and I were in a home group in the church that we were in. We were just married, and in our home group, the leader sent out an email saying, this week when we come together, I would like to go around the room and for you to answer the question, what you're learning from God's word today. Very similar question. And so we got there that week, and we were going around the room, and everyone was explaining, what am I learning from God's Word today? And I remember so specifically, one man in the room, it got to him, and he said, you know, I remember as a boy memorizing Proverbs chapter 3 and just how helpful it was. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, Lean, lean not on your own understanding, He will make your path straight, and he was even able to recite a few of the verses and, and then we moved on to the next person in the circle. Because I'm a stickler for details, I sat there just murmuring in my heart thinking, but you didn't answer the question. And I didn't say anything and no one else said anything. I don't know if anyone else in the room was thinking the same thing. I thought you didn't answer the question. The question that we were assigned with this week was, what is God teaching you from his word today? And the question you answered is, what did God once upon a time teach you when you were a boy? And a few years later, he walked away from the Christian faith and is not part of the church today. I remember wondering at the time, is, is he learning anything from God's word today? I just wondered, did he give that answer? Because actually there is no instruction this day from God's word to his heart. And in the same way, John makes plain, your repentance must be now. So the Christian is to be beholding Christ in an ever-present way, delighting in him and his kingdom such that your repentance is now such that there is an ongoing turning away from sin. Don't find your security in something you can point to in years previous and say, you know what, there was this time when I turned away from this sin, and on that basis, I rest in a notion of eternal security. That is not the repentance that John is commanding. He's commanding a repentance that is bearing fruit now. And thus your responsibility again is to bring Christ and his kingdom into view in a habitual manner. So that God is continuously opening your eyes to your sin and you are continuously by his grace dealing with it. That is the kind of repentance that avoids judgment. Thirdly, John introduces Jesus Christ, the one who is to come, and he teaches repentance that does not embrace this Christ, brings judgment. Repentance that doesn't bear fruit brings judgment. Repentance that is not now brings judgment. Repentance that does not embrace Christ brings judgment. And in a sense, this third confrontation, this third portrait of judgment summarizes the whole interaction. I've tried to argue as we've gone through this that by inference, John keeps making appeal to the one that is coming in his kingdom. By inference, he's making an appeal that you would embrace the kingdom. You wouldn't do these acts of repentance in your, in your own strength, but it would be by God's grace predicated upon a beholding of Christ. The third portrait of judgment makes the matter plain. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, I'm not the main thing. There's another one who comes after me. And if you think this was confrontational, wait till you see him. He says, I have confronted your sin. I've confronted your false repentance. But there's one coming after me who is mightier than I. And John employs this picture of not being worthy to carry his sandals. In Luke's gospel, to untie his sandals, that was the job reserved for the lowest slave. John says, I don't even make it to that position. That's how we compare. And in every respect, this man is greater than I am. And then he speaks about the baptism that this man will bring, and it is twofold. There is a baptism that he brings of the Holy Spirit and a different baptism that he brings of fire. Some would lump these together as one baptism, the Holy Spirit, and a refining work. Within the context, fire has been used to speak about judgment. And contextually, it seems that the same would be the idea here that fire is speaking of judgment and therefore two different baptisms. He says, the one that is to come will act as a winnowing fork. His ministry will be a winnowing fork. And it will divide people. And you will all receive a baptism from him. Every single person will be baptized by Jesus. The question is, what will be your baptism? And I wonder if you ever think of the gospel in this way. Jesus comes heralding the kingdom. He is the bringer of the kingdom and every single thing he does is a winnowing fork. Jesus comes and teaches in parables. The parables are not to be thought of as just some helpful illustration that better shows to us the nature of the kingdom. That is not what Jesus said about the parables. He says there are those who have been given ears to hear and there are those whose ears are deaf who do not hear this parable. And that is therefore an indication that they are not of me. They have no part with me. They can't receive my parables. His parables separate the wheat from the chaff. Jesus comes teaching. He teaches a good law. But there are many who cannot receive his teaching that find it too much, too offensive. Jesus says, unless you are willing to hate your mother and your father, you have no part with me. It's too much for many. And exactly, that is exactly what Christ intends. He never intends his teaching to be appealing to everyone, to be palatable by everyone. But rather, his teaching divides and so there are some that hear his good life-giving law and they do nothing but turn their back on it, thereby separating themselves from those who have eyes of faith and ears to hear. Jesus comes performing miracles. You would think the number of times I've heard from someone who is, who is refusing to accept Jesus as their savior, the number of times they have said, if I could see a miracle, then I would embrace Christ. I would buy into this message if I could see one of these in the flesh with my own eyes. That is not true. That is not going to be the means by which you embrace Christ because he does miracles all the way through the gospel. And those that are not of God label him to be a demon. Based upon his miracles, his healing work, they say he is of Satan. You see how even these miracles separate. And then at the end of his life, Jesus ordains and grants that wicked men would drive nails through his hands So that he would hang from a tree, dying the most awful death that anyone at that time in history could possibly have died. There was no more tragic, more graphic way for a person to die in the known world at that time than by crucifixion. And that's exactly the means that God ordains for Jesus to die. And in it, there are many who do not find any eternal worth. There are many that look at the cross and they find it to be abhorrent, they find it to be disgusting. If they are forced to articulate a connection between what happened to Jesus and his father in heaven, they would say it is simply cosmic child abuse. How can this be a loving God that sends his son to die in this way? They are not those that would come together on a Sunday morning and celebrate it. That's how peculiar are those that are called by God to faith in Christ. We celebrate his death on the cross. We rejoice in his blood. But for others, they turn their back on the cross. It becomes the culminating winnowing fork in Jesus's life. And so you see, John says, if you can't, Hear my message, my teaching on the necessity and the manner of repentance. There is no way that you're going to accept the one who is to come. He comes after me. He is greater than I am. And he will separate. His whole life, his teaching, his death will separate the wheat from the chaff. And those that reject him will be thrown into an unquenchable fire. Jesus will speak a lot about the coming judgment. And he will use the same language. He will speak of it in the same way. And there is no reason to believe that these are word games. There's no solid ground to reason that John the Baptist's teaching here about the judgment that is to come is simply a metaphor. It is not a metaphor for something else that is less painful. It is not a metaphor for a limited judgment. It doesn't make any sense for John to say that the judgment that that is coming is an unquenchable fire if what he intends to teach is that the fire can be quenched. That makes no sense. We have every reason to take his words at face value in a literal manner. The judgment that is coming is an unquenchable fire. It is more than that, but it certainly isn't less than that. Jesus will use other language in addition to the unquenchable fire to speak about God's judgment. It is more than that. It is even worse than that, but it certainly isn't less than that. And so you have to understand, if you reject Jesus, or if your repentance is examined and it is found to be of the nature of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is what will come. If you're here today and the things that are found in this text are piercing your heart, please, would you speak with someone? Many people will not speak about God's judgment today. It is not a popular message to preach. We live in a time where the love of God is readily affirmed even outside of the church. I don't think it would be too hard for me today to walk down in 2000 Oaks and to find somebody on the street that would give me a thumbs up to the truth that God is love. His judgment is not readily embraced. But you have to understand, one of the most loving things you can ever do is to tell people about the judgment of God. With grace and humility, tell others about the coming judgment. And preach the cross as the place where God's judgment and his love meet. You understand the point of reconciliation, and the only point of reconciliation is the cross. God's judgment is real, and it is coming to those who refuse to repent and refuse to embrace Christ. But there is a point where his judgment can be reconciled with his love. And that's how we understand the cross. And John says, for those that have embraced this message who see the coming kingdom, they understand the nature of the coming king, they have repented of their sin. There's a different baptism. There is a baptism, he says, of the Holy Spirit. And as we've been learning in the evening service, if you don't come to evening church, you're missing out. Because the book of Ephesians is rich, Come and learn from Paul's letter to the Ephesians about this baptism. Just a few weeks ago, we read in Ephesians, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs to every single believer at the point of saving faith. They receive God. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence inside of them. And his ministry is manifold. What Paul says to the Ephesians is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is one that protects, guides, and guarantees your inheritance. As one commentator writes, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is such as to put a slice of heaven inside of you. And to teach you about heavenly realities. And John the Baptist says, there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit which will keep you embracing Christ and repenting in accordance with his kingdom. May it be a reality for all of us this morning that we do not repent in a manner that is at odds with Christ and his kingdom. We don't repent in a way that fails to bear fruit. We don't repent in a way that is only past and not present. And we do not repent in a way that is not first and foremost embracing Christ as altogether valuable. And the reason why we would turn away from our sin. Let's pray in response. Father, we give you thanks for the ministry of John the Baptist and his difficult teaching. As he confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he speaks to us of truths that are universal. They are not restricted to these two groups, but they are true of all of us in so much as we are sinners. Sinners. And we may very well be prone to repent in a manner that doesn't fit with the coming of the kingdom and the arrival of the king. So by your grace, we plead right now for your grace in our hearts. By your grace, open our eyes to see Christ. To find in him our ultimate treasure. Father, refresh our hearts towards Jesus this morning. For anyone here who has never found Christ to be their Savior, effect that in them now, we pray. For all of us that know Jesus as our Savior, our Lord, by your grace, day by day, would we find him to be glorious? More glorious than anything else, more wonderful than anything else. And based upon our steadfast taking in of Christ, would we repent? Repent in a way that we bear fruit. Repent in a way that is now, 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 now. Repent in a way that we are enraptured by the glory of Christ. Father, guide us in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.